1 Timothy chapter 1, if you'll turn in your copy of the scripture to that place in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I have uh, preached a lot of Christmas sermons over 40 some odd years of uh, ministry. And the Lord is gracious to give me uh, one uh, that I wouldn't have necessarily drawn, been drawn to originally, but thought about it and this text and what it teaches us. I believe it encapsulates uh, the rationale for Christmas quite clearly. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 15 through 17. I'm really just taking a portion of uh, what Paul has to say in a section that really begins in verse 12 and extends through verse 17. The text reads as follows. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm using a subject, as you know, why Christmas? The answer to the question posed by the sermon title can be given in two words, sin and grace. Our sin and God's grace. That is why Christmas. Man cannot do anything to repair the rupture in his relationship with God and himself. God alone resolved the dire spiritual and eternal predicament in which man found himself. God did this because as 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 says, it speaks of God as God our Savior. God is a Savior. He is a Savior by nature. He is the deliverer from sin and its consequences. He is the source of salvation. And the text there says, God our Savior. That applies to all who belong to Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He's not some abstract Savior out there. He is a personal, relational Savior for those who've come to him through Christ. He is our Savior. Because he is a Savior by nature, he acted in grace to repair the broken relationship between us and him. In 1 Timothy 1.1, as I've stated, that text says God is our Savior. The Saviorhood of God for us is personal. It was for the Apostle Paul as well. That's why he said God our Savior. As I mentioned a moment ago in verses 12 through 16, he addresses, Paul does, the themes of grace and sin in his life. And as he does so, we see why Christmas. Let's look at the first heading for our text. Verse 15, we can give this division, the purpose for Christmas articulated. In this verse, the purpose for the first advent of Christ is expressly, expressly stated. 
And that purpose is in this verse. And Paul calls it a trustworthy statement. That is, it is a reliable statement. You can go to the bank on it. You can bank your eternal soul on it. That's how trustworthy the statement that Paul elucidates here in a moment is. It is also a clear doctrinal statement. It is part of the gospel, the good news. If there were no Christmas, there would be no gospel. If Christ hadn't come into the world, there would be no good news. The news would be eternally bad. It would be bleak. The gospel, Christmas, is related to the gospel. And notice what Paul says here in the text. Deserving full acceptance. Paul means that this trustworthy statement is personally appropriated. That is, taken by everybody. Everybody to take this and make it their own. And this statement is so reliable that you ought to take it without reservations of any kind. Or as we might say, without any strings attached. Now here's the statement. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Those words of the apostle find their origin in the words of our Lord himself. Luke 19.10, he said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the divine rationale for Christmas. And we unpack this simple statement, which really is a profound expression of divine truth. Superficially, it can seem an ordinary statement. We all know it. We know why he came. Any instructed Christian gets that. It's deeper than that. And we look first at the person that it refers to, the person of Christian Christmas, Christ, Messiah. He is the anointed king who came to redeem sinners. And I think that escapes many people. I said it earlier in the service. A lot of people have no idea. They know a baby was born in Bethlehem. They know Christians say that there's a place in Jerusalem where he was born, or Bethlehem where he was born. And people have gone there to see the supposed spot where he was born, and they have news reports about it and all of that. They couldn't this year because of the war. So people know about a baby, but they don't know why that baby came. They really don't know who that baby is. He is the anointed king of heaven. He came to redeem fallen sinners. That's who he is. If you don't get that, you don't understand Christmas one whit. That's what it's about. Consider that God came down here to redeem fallen sinners. Jesus is his earthly name. He became the earthly Jesus at his incarnation. This too is profound. Jesus became his name. He received it at his incarnation. 
And the text tells us that he came into the world. Came into the world. Let me say it one more time. He came into the world. These words not only imply his incarnation, but also his pre-existence. In fact, in his ministry, Jesus let it be known that he came down from heaven. No one could say those words and be taken seriously by anyone unless they really did come down from heaven. Jesus said this audacious statement in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus said, I have sinned to heaven. You know what? I came down from there. If you say that, people are going to roll their eyes. They're going to say, you have a massive ego. Are you just plain crazy? Because we know who your mother is. <laughs> your daddy. So we know you where you came from. <laughs> No, but Jesus said, I came down from heaven. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, he states that. Jesus, therefore, asserted his preexistence. In fact, he lived before he was born. I mean, he lived before he was in Mary's womb. Let me clarify. Make sure you get it. Before he was in Mary's womb as the God-man, he, he existed, he, and he acted, he lived, preexisted. He came down from heaven. Our Lord, of course, was unique. Um, there's no one ever born like him. There are other special births. Of course, we understand that because the Bible teaches Abraham and Sarah rise up and say, oh, well, we had one. Abraham, you know, I was 100 years old. Here comes this boy <laughs> named Isaac. And, and Sarah said, oh, Abraham, ain't nothing. I'm the woman I gave birth, and I was 90. <laughs> but as remarkable as that, that birth of Isaac was, it's not like this one. Jesus' birth was unprecedented, and it cannot be duplicated because of who he is. It was, his birth was a virgin birth. His humanity was conceived in the womb of the virgin by uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled the prophecy. We read it just a moment ago. Remember, in our, in our responsive reading, we we've saw that prophecy, Genesis 3.15, God said about the seed of the woman, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The work of the third person, the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, was involved. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was involved in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Remember, we studied in Philippians last week and a week prior to that, we saw where Jesus said, emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity. That's an impossibility. But what he did, he left his prerogatives behind, his glory, all of that, so that he might take on the form of a slave. In Philippians 2.7. 
So we have the third person and the second person of the Trinity involved in the incarnation. There's another. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father. He prepared Christ's physical body. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, the he there is Jesus. He says that he again is our Lord. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So in the miracle of the incarnation, the first, second, third persons of the Trinity were involved. in this remarkable reality. Now Jesus, this one who came into the world to save sinners, possesses two natures, but he is not two persons. He is one person with two natures. So why are you telling us this? Well, because in church history there have been those who thought that very thing. And in church history, scholars, theologians, pastors had to refute that with the truth about who Jesus is. He is one person, not two, one person with two distinct natures, fully God, fully man. And they, they addressed this in A.D. 451. I mean, that's a little before you were born. In A.D. 451, 500 Christian leaders convened the Chalcedon Council. And in their formulation about the person of Christ, they stated in part the following about the two natures of Christ. Listen to this. Quote, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. That's what they penned. That's what they did after collaboration. 500 scholars, theologians, etc. in A54, AD 451, they determined based on scripture about Christ and his two natures. Without confusion. What they meant was no absorption between the divine nature and the human nature. They remained distinct. The divine nature didn't take in a little of the human nature and vice versa. That didn't happen. Those two natures in Christ, which we cannot comprehend because we're mere humans, No confusion. Without change, they said. That is, each of the natures retained its properties. His human nature remained human and his divine retained its divinity. Without separation. No separation of the two natures. Only a union of them in one person. Not two persons. You say, well, how do you explain that? Don't ask me. Do you really think we are going to be able to comprehend the hypostatic union, the, the personal union of two natures and one person, the Lord Jesus? You really think we're going to get that? No. We accept that by faith. We're not going to get that any more than we're going to understand the Trinity. It's well beyond us. 
We're finite beings and we're dealing with an infinite being. There's no end to his understanding. Psalm 145, I think it is. It eludes us. The mystery of the God-man is beyond our comprehension. But you notice something here. The text says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, lived in the 11th century, was a bishop, a pastor, thinker, theologian. And his famous work called Cure Deus Homo, Cure Deus Homo, Latin meaning, why did God become man? He goes on to say this, since sin is an affront against God, then a payment from a human will not suffice. The satisfaction of the debt that must come from God himself, that satisfaction of death, of the debt, our moral debt, our sinful debt, must come from God himself. Humans ought to, but only God can make the right wrong done. He alone can make it right. It is the person of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man that the satisfaction was made and our salvation completely accomplished. It took a man, because we're men, but it took a God to pay his own debt. Did you get that? No human being can pay a sin debt in terms of salvation. There are some paying their sin debt, even as I speak. They're the ones who died without Christ. They're the ones who refused his entreaties. They're the ones who said no to him. And they died in their sins. And they're now paying their sin debt. You say, will it ever be paid off? Only if eternity ends. It won't. It can't be discharged. In fact, there will never be a recipient. But for us, who've trusted Christ, he said, I got the receipt. For him, for her, paid in full. That's what he did. That's the way he came. The text says, to save sinners, to deliver our rescue sinners. I, uh, you, perhaps you saw the instance, in, uh, the situation in San Diego, California. A man was trapped inside of a mountain in a cliff. Remember that? He couldn't do a thing to help himself. They had to bring in experts, and at one point they even had a man turned upside down and stuck him in there. So they took him, put IVs in him, and gave him Gatorade to keep him alive. But the man could do nothing, so out, help had to come from the outside. And it was wonderful to see them pull this man out on the stretcher. They saved him, but he needed a savior. Or in his case, he needed saviors. 
That's what Jesus did for He came from outside. We couldn't have gotten out of what we were in. We were like that man in a cave. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We were dying, and he came inside there and pulled us out. He saved us. Really, how did he do it? I'm just trying to illustrate it, but how did he do it? First uh, Timothy chapter 2, look at that, verse 6. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. In the original, there's the word lutron. Here has a preposition in front of that word lutron is antilutron. That, uh, that preposition there intensifies the word lutron, rendered ransom. And the reason it does is because Christ paid the the penalty for our freedom from sin's guilt. He didn't do it like um, some people, you know, you're rich, hypothetically. And they kidnap your child and they uh, want a million bucks. You write out the check or whatever and pay it to free your child. The ransom payment. Jesus didn't write out a check, as it were. Antilutron means he was the payment himself. He was the victim. He didn't send some money. He came and paid it himself, his own life. He made the, pay the payment. His death on the cross. That's why we shared together in the Lord's table, because... Christmas and the cross, those two you cannot separate. He came to do that. As the text says, to save sinners, to rescue sinners, rescue us from divine wrath, to rescue us from deserved punishment. Sinners. All human beings are fallen sinners. I've never met a a non-sinner human being. Neither of you. And I even see one every day. I, I, I look in the mirror. Sinners denotes man's constant violation of God's law. Men are sinners by nature and by practice. That's who we are. You want to know what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, he's, he wrote a, a, a letter to the editor and talked about what was wrong with the world, and he said, I am. He's right. We are. Man is a sinner. You want to know all these problems that we see in the world? It's because of us. You don't sin like somebody else, but you have your thing. Somebody else has their thing, but everybody contributes to the problem. We're sinners. So Jesus didn't come to save good people. He didn't come to save some pretty lovable and nice people. He came to save people who were violating his law, 
rebels. That's who he came to save. That's the truth about Christmas I don't think people like to understand. Do remember that babe in a manger came to die for a bunch of wretched sinners like us. And Paul said it here at the bottom of the verse, verse 15, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul could not have meant that he now sins more than anyone in the world. I believe he's saying that at all. Paul was a growing man. He was a mature man. He, he, was a, he was sinning less and less in his life as he's growing more and more like Jesus Christ. So he, he's not saying, you know, I've been a Christian a good while. And when he wrote 1 Timothy, he had been a Christian a good while. He would say, well, you know, I'm even more sinful now. No, he wasn't saying that. He lived with a clear conscience before God, he says in Acts 23, 1 and 24. Apparently what the Apostle Paul means is that because he persecuted the church, that made him the foremost of sinners. And Paul even said that in this, in this passage, verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a, a persecutor and a violent aggressor, he recognized his sin. He never got over that. So he said, I, I was in the vanguard of sinners because I persecuted the church of Christ. I persecuted Christ himself. What's fascinating, Christ saved him. Christ gave him grace. Christ gave him eternal life. So what we've seen in verse 15, the purpose for Christmas articulated. Verse 16, personal receipt of grace. Yet for this reason, what he just stated, the bottom of the last verse, I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Paul contrasts his sinfulness to the mercy of Christ. Yes. Yes, that was a sinner. And we might say a big time sinner. But I found mercy. In verse 14 of this passage, Paul says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Here he talks about, in verse 16, mercy. The difference between grace and mercy is this. Grace removes the guilt. Mercy takes away the misery caused by sin. And that's what we got. Grace and mercy. God didn't merely save Paul to keep him out of hell or for him to be the apostles to the Gentiles. He could have found somebody else to do that. Here's the reason. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. 
He saved Paul in order that he might display his grace, power, and patience in Paul's life. That word patience here is a Greek term that means patience with people. Think about this. While Paul, called Saul, was on his murderous rampage and hating Christ, trying to destroy the gospel and destroy Christians, Jesus Christ was patient with him. He saw his sin, but he was patient. He didn't send a lightning bolt from heaven and strike him down. He could have, he didn't. He was patient with him. Think about that. Think about your own life, and I'm not trying to put anybody on guilt trip. Just think about how you were before you came to Christ. He was patient with you. When you think about what you did and how you were toward him. He was just patient. He could have come and knocked on your door and said, it's up. Your day is up. But he was patient with you. And that's why he was patient with Paul because he wanted people like Paul and who were sinners, even extreme ones, to understand, I am patient. I'm going to say, I'm going to be patient and save you. He's patient with Paul, the foremost sinner. Let me um, put a caveat here. Don't. Don't think, okay, I just found out Jesus is patient. So, <laughs> I'm just going to keep on you don't know when his patience with you may run out. There could be an hourglass, so to speak. You don't know where that sand is. He's an example, verse 16, because God wanted to show men who are sinful Paul was sinful. Your sin isn't so great that I can't save you. That word example really is a Greek word that means sketched out. Commentator William Hendrickson writes, in his gallery of grace, the artist's savior had, as it were, drawn and put on exhibition a sketch just like a master will. First draw a rough pencil sketch before attempting a final work. The sketch revealed Paul as an illustration, pattern, or model of the type of work sovereign grace was going to, per to perform in the lives of all through its efficacy who would come to Christ. In other words, this is what sovereign grace will do for those who will come by faith. He will save, the Lord will, just like he saved Paul. It says the bottom of the verse, who would believe in him for eternal life? God is in the business of saving some of the worst people we can imagine. 
John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. When I hear the world sing that, I think, y'all don't know what you're saying. You're mouthing words, ignorant of the profundity of the words and who wrote them. John Newton wrote those words after living a debauched life. He was involved in slave trading. He was profane. Man could cuss like nobody's business. This is a wretched individual. But then Christ saved him. At the age of 82, John Newton was speaking. When he was speaking at that age, 82, it was, it was shortly before he died. And he said this in his message. My memory is nearly gone, but I can remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is is a great Savior. Man, isn't that encouraging? That's why God saved Paul as he did. Say, look, I saved people like that. So don't think if you're here this morning and say, well, I'm outside the, uh, the pale or the boundary of um, salvation. No, you're not. There's nobody who's so big a sinner that Christ can't save them. Paul, he could come down from heaven and say, I can testify to that reality. So the purpose for Christmas articulated the personal receipt of grace, praise to the God of grace in Christ. This is our final heading, verse 17. This is a doxology. A praise to God. Paul can't help after contemplating all of this. He began in verse 12 talking about how grace had come into his life, how the Lord Jesus forgave his sin. He understood the gospel. And recalling all that to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus, and he gets to this point, he just stops, and he has to say, wait, 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 I need to praise the Lord here. After what he's done for me, I have to praise him. And this is what he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I almost hate to tell you what these words mean. It's just wonderful to realize how Paul burst forth in praise, in print, to praise the Lord. King eternal. God is the king. King of the ages. He rules all the ages. He had no beginning and he'll have no ending. He's the only king who will never give up his throne. He's the only king who can't be removed from his throne. Kings come and go, but God is still king. He's king eternal. 
He is the ruler forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Not only that, he's immortal. In case you're wondering, maybe he'll die. He's imperishable. He is incorruptible. He'll never perish. He'll always be. God doesn't become, he bees. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's the I am. He's invisible. He can only be known by his self-revelation. He's the only God. He's... Uh, one God who exists in three distinct persons in another. And this is the God who initiated the saving plan, brought his son into the world. This is the God who's behind Christmas. That's why we say like Paul, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He alone is worthy. Let's praise his name. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bless your name. We give you praise. We join with Paul and all the other believers expressing our gratitude to you saying you alone deserve all the honor and glory what you've done for us undeserving people you sought us out and saved us sent Christ to do the work that was needed we give you the glory and the praise may our Christmas celebration be filled with the truth of what you've done for your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.